0: Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. So glad that you're here with us today. Um... I often think about a, a, a passage of scripture before each of our services, uh, before I preach, yeah, but before each of our services, and um, it's a passage of scripture that, for whatever reason, the Lord really has highlighted to me um, as of recent, and it's, um, it's Jesus in the garden uh, just prior to his death. He knows, what's, he knows what's coming, he knows what's about to happen. Um, he's been in the garden, he's been praying, and he says in John chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. What he means by the hour has come is, it's time. Like my purpose is about to be fulfilled. AKA, I am about to go to the cross. I am about to go and die. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And um, I think about that verse a lot. I'm a picture guy. I I see things visually. I learn visually in, in different moments of my life. I think about that verse, and I think about, what it means for Jesus to say, glorify me that you might be glorified. Sometimes I think about like a a giant like body mirror and it's like, Father, glorify me that, that they might just see you. Like that there would be a mirror just right here that when they look up at a stage, they're not actually seeing me or a band, but they're actually just like reflecting right to heaven. And like, that's my personal prayer. Every time I teach, every time I preach, that is our team's prayer. Every time we come up on the stage, and yet at the same time, what Kevin was just kind of talking to us about in light of some of the things that maybe we witnessed this week, that is like our prayer for our church. Like in the midst of unrest, it's just another like, plot in the line of unrest, but in the midst of unrest, in the midst of ridiculousness, in the midst of just people's brokenness, God, would you glorify this place? Glorify us, not that we might have glory, but that people might see what is happening here, and ultimately, they would just see you. So that is our heart today, God. That is our prayer today, God. We're just a small church, Jesus. We don't need national recognition. We don't need any recognition other than to be recognized as a place of people that love you and reflect you and reflect heaven and what that looks like, what that sounds like, what that responds like. That is our heart, Jesus. That is our prayer, Jesus. Make us more like you. Make us more like you. Make us more like you, Jesus. The Jesus from John chapter 17 who who asks for glory not to be glorified but to bring glory and honor actually to the Father in heaven. Like Brian said, like Kevin said, God, this is your time, Jesus. This is your time, God. This is your time, Holy Spirit. Thank you for inviting us into it, for welcoming us into your presence today. I believe that we are in the presence of God today. You are are sitting in the presence of God today. So open our ears Open our hearts as we open your book, as you open your word, your living word. I think the revelation of the reality that this word is living, that it is alive, is going to be so, so, so important for us moving forward. <clears throat> We're going to find ourselves Individually and collectively, in places that are going to be uncomfortable, dealing with things and events that are going to be uncomfortable. But our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in you, God. And you are alive and you are living, and that is something worth having and putting our hope in this morning. So make these words come alive to our hearts, Jesus. That we would be transformed leaving this place today, God. Not just encouraged, but transformed. We thank you for your presence. We acknowledge your presence. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, good morning. Church, if you have your Bibles, um, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. If you're at home watching with us or watching at a different time, just know that we, uh, we love you and we're, we're thinking of you <clears throat> and we feel um, your presence even with us today. And so, yeah, 1 John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. I'm going to have it on the screen behind me as well as the screen for you at home but we are continuing into our, our new series together this morning, um, Forgotten Virtue, uh, the series that Pastor Rick kicked off for us last weekend, where we are looking together at the virtue of love and the impact that it should have <clears throat> on the life of a follower of Jesus. And when I say impact, I'm talking about like an all-encompassing overhaul of our lives, where love and specifically God's love is more than just a weekend experience to be had, rather an identity and a lifestyle to be lived. And I think that that is a really important um, thing to identify even right off the bat in this entire series. The virtue of love or God's love is more than just a weekend experience to be had together. We all walk out of this place together this morning saying, wow, that was incredible. That was amazing. We really felt the presence of God today. I can't wait to come back in seven days and have that experience again. So more than an experience uh, the love of God is, is meant to become more of an identity and a lifestyle to be lived. And this is where we are picking up today with a strong desire to both better understand and comprehend the relationship that us as followers of Jesus ought to strive for with the world when it comes to God's love. Because we are absolutely supposed to have relationship with the world. We are in the world. We are of the world. I think one of the common misconceptions that I see growing even anymore in in culture and society today and potentially even in the church is that, well, because we're Christians or followers of Jesus, um, we don't exist in the world. We're not of the world. There is a divide And yet, recent events would tell us, no, like, Christianity, people who claim to follow Jesus are very much in the world, they're very much in the spotlight. And so it's not necessarily about how can we just figure out how to close our doors, lock ourselves in here, and just wait for Jesus to return. It's more about what can we do? What is our response? What is the relationship that we as followers of Jesus are called to have with the world, in the world, when it comes to God's love? So the first challenge, John drops two challenges for us this morning from this passage in 1 John chapter 2. And the first challenge from John to us in verse 12 is to embrace who you are in Jesus. When it comes to, to the relationship that Christians and followers of Jesus have with the world and in the world, the first challenge is that we need to embrace who we are in Jesus 1 John chapter 2 verse 12 John writes this to the believers he says i am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake i am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning i am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one So, the first thing that we see John doing in this passage is is rallying around the redeemed identity that his recipients have in Christ. That we, us, you, me, that followers of Jesus have in him. Like, identity is important. I think that you would hope that you would agree with that statement. Identity is important. Knowing yourself, understanding yourself, it's life-giving, and it helps a person to connect with both themselves and others. But there is none more important than who you are in Christ. There is no identity More important than who you are in Christ. And this is what John is getting at right off the bat, reminding the believers just who they are because of Christ. First, to the the children or all believers, he says, You are forgiven. To all of us, to all believers, John says, you are forgiven. The identity of all of God's children is that we are forgiven, we are made free, and we are redeemed. Not just that, but on top of all of those things, this forgiveness, it's, it's rooted in his character, it's rooted in his name, and that makes us secure. Like, it doesn't say that that our forgiveness is rooted in, in us, and Pat's forgiveness was rooted in Pat's life. No, that's not possible. But it does say that it's rooted in God's name and God's character, forgiveness. It is the base of this new identity upon which we can be confident to build our lives from second to the the fathers or those who are further along in their faith, the the spiritually mature. He says, you know the Father. Like I can actually, in my mind, I can see John writing this, and in my notes here, I put it in all caps because it's that important. I wonder if it might have been in all caps back then. He says, hey... For those of you that have been walking with God, let me remind you of something. You know the Father. Knowing something doesn't always mean that we're living it out. And so he reminds them of this truth because it is an important reality for one whose identity is in the love of God. That that you know the Father and the Father knows you. See, that is, that is remarkable and it is special about this God. You know him, but he knows you. He knows you way better than you can ever know him. It's why having a multi-generational church is so very important. It's why we cannot become okay with looking around this room and seeing a bunch of people that look the exact same as us, especially the same age as us. I remember my first, one of my first courses in grad school, ministry school, and we were talking about um, the multi-generational, multi-ethnic church, and Woodside Detroit had pretty much just started. And if you know anything about the origin of our campus, um, it pretty much launched out of a young adults ministry up at the main campus. And so when we first started having church down here, I had just gotten back from traveling and I was trying to plug into a new community. And I found Woodside, Detroit, because I'd been going to Woodside the rest of my life. And so I came down and I looked around and I was like, this is amazing. Everyone is like, 24 years old like how cool wow what a cool church and I started reading these books and having these conversations about the multi-generational church and I was like I that was like our identity sadly oh Woodside Detroit that's the cool hip church that's for the young people but how are the young people ever going to grow and understand how to live life if we're not actually sitting next to a, a mature person? So God began to, to bring these people into our community, and he has continued to bring them in to our community. But listen to me, young people, I'm 32, I think that I'm, I hope, I think I qualify. Hopefully Micah's like, yeah, dude, you're a young person like me. We cannot become content with looking around this room and being like, oh yeah, 25 is the average age. It's not gonna work. We got, we got people in relationships, we got people engaged. I I literally need older people to tell me what to do. We need that. We have to have it. And he says right here, like, this is why the multi-generational church is so important. It's like my grandma with me at the table before a while and I told that story a few weeks ago, but the spiritually mature have long tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we need that experience. And so John writes to them as a reminder of what they know well, but are often apt to forget. <clears throat> and finally, write to the young men or for those Through, though young in their faith, have overcome the enemy, he says, You are conquerors. I love how John is picking and choosing these different levels of the believer, both relationally mature and um, and age wise mature. But he says, You are forgiven. You know the Father, and the Father knows you. And now he says, you are conquerors. That is our identity that we have in Christ, in God's love. You are conquerors, and he implores them to remember that it is because of Christ. Like as humans, we so often think that we have something or sadly everything in our lives taken care of and fixed and yet all too often, that's when the dam breaks. Like the minute that you think, the minute that I think I have this under control, I've conquered this, I know what I'm doing, I don't need you anymore, I can handle this, you turn around and the dam breaks. So John is not only providing the encouragement of our identity, but also the reminder of our strength. He says the source of our victory, victory over temptation and the enemy and sin is the indwelling word hidden away in our hearts. This got me this week the idea of the indwelling word. One of my goals or intentions this year is to, to, to memorize more scripture, that in moments of tension or trial or temptation like this, this is the voice that I will hear inside first and foremost. When I leave it or rely on myself, to speak up in moments of trial or temptation or tension, when I say, in those moments, Pat, you better speak up, Pat's not speaking up. When you leave it to yourself in those moments, maybe yourself does speak up one time or two times, but I promise you, if this is not the voice that you're ultimately hearing in the back of your head and in your spirit, it's only a matter of time. You want to be conquerors? like Get in this book. You want to overcome what holds you back and breaks you down? Know these words. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sometimes these verses in in the Psalms specifically, they're so, so simple. It's easy to just pass right over. But when you pull it out on its own and you read it, you consider perhaps for the first time the power and the authority behind such a statement. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Puritan John Owen once put it, always be at killing sin in your life, for you may be sure that sin is always killing you. Oh, it's the weekend, I'll take a day off. Enemy's like, yes, that's just what I want. Take a day off. <clears throat> I remember leaving Denver, leaving YWAM to drive to a school in Kansas City and it was, a, it was a day off, right? It was a travel day, and uh, me and my friend, Brittany, we were at this little um, grocery store around the corner from the YWAM base, and um, I remember we were in line, and we had just come out of this school of evangelism, and we were tired, um, and we were not looking forward to an eight-hour drive, and we're standing in line, and I noticed the woman in front of me, and she... Um, had like an ankle brace on <clears throat> and I felt this like, like the, first, the first thing I thought, right? The first, the first thing I thought was, oh, ankle brace, like we should pray for her. And the very next thing that I heard inside was, it's your day off, man. <laughs> like, it's okay. And then the next voice that I heard in my head even louder was, it's your day off, I never took a day off. I don't take days off to operate in the way that that I just operate. Like, the kingdom doesn't take days off. The enemy doesn't take days off. But we take days off. Oh, man, it's Sunday. I'll take the day off. Saturday, no, I'll take the day off. Tomorrow's church. I'll be good. You won't be good. I promise you, I know we won't be good. And so not only are you God's forgiven child, right? Forgiven for the sake of, of God's own name. Not only do you already know the Father, the one whose truth alone sets you free, but you are a victor, an overcomer by virtue of your identity in Christ. And so in embracing this, John calls us to embrace this, but he also then calls us to reject what the world has to offer, or in other terms, avoid falling in love with the world. Two statements that that essentially mean the same thing, but for me, I I find a deeper connection with the idea of, of avoid falling in love with the world. <clears throat> Picking it up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the word says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Avoid falling in love with the world, and it's really about our time and our resources. I you know, think about the story of the rich young ruler who struggled to give up and to give away his power and his wealth. And what John is, is getting at here is that loving the world system and loving God properly is never possible. Like You can love the world system and you can love God, but, but, but loving God properly is never possible. Like, it just doesn't connect. It just doesn't compute. I think it's also important, though, to note that John's instructions to not love the world shouldn't be taken as an utter rejection of the world, rather a charge to followers of Jesus not to idolize or adopt thoughts and values and behaviors that do not reflect God's heart and our new identities in him. The Bible says that God so loved the world. In perhaps simpler words, John warns against devotion to world systems as opposed to God. And as he expands upon it in verses 16 and 17, he gives us these three clarifying reasons for our response to the world as he defines it. And the first is the world cannot offer you what you need. I think these are worth writing down, so I'll repeat that just for the sake of time. The world cannot offer you what you need. It can't do it. And instead, it offers three things very opposite of the heart of God. It offers you the desires of your flesh. It offers you the desires of the eyes. And it offers you the pride of life. And on top of that, the enemy uses these quote-unquote opportunities to attack us at the core of our identity in Christ. The core of our identity in Christ, what God says that we are to do and who God says that you are. These are the two big pieces when it comes to your and our identity in Christ, who God says that you are. And what God then sends you to do. In the beginning, he, Satan, came to to Adam and Eve in the garden to contradict what God said about their purpose. I've touched on this a couple times, and I will continue to do so because not only is it one of my absolute favorite revelations that I've ever had from a different pastor. It speaks directly to our identity as followers of Jesus, and it shows us just the level of attack that the enemy throws into our lives. And so we know two things. God will tell us who we are, and he will tell us what to do, and the enemy will come and he will attack, and he will contradict, and he will twist those exact statements because he knows that. Those exact statements are the key to unlocking unlimited potential within you. So here's Satan coming at Adam and Eve in the garden to contradict what God said about their purpose. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see this. So when the woman saw or understood that the tree was good for food, the desires of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It is so, so important for us as followers of Jesus to recognize the way that the enemy works. Because as powerful as he is, there is a pattern to be seen. And if we can begin to understand and recognize his pattern, not just his pattern, but that it is the exact same every single time, from the beginning of creation, even with Jesus, right? We see and know that, that, that Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. The Bible tells us this in Luke chapter 3, transitioning over to Luke chapter 4. It says that as he finishes his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, the enemy finds him and immediately attempts to contradict who God says he is. If you think back just a few verses prior, you know that Jesus is getting baptized in the river. And what happens? It says that the heavens opened and a dove came down and a voice of God from the heavens boomed out. And it said what? It said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus does any earthly ministry, God says to him in front of everybody, this is my son. He says, your identity is that you are my son. We fast forward now just a couple verses and we often will think that the first temptation of Jesus is to turn a rock into bread, but actually I think the first temptation of Jesus is the enemy approaching him and saying, what if you are the son of God? Like, the first thing he tries to do is contradict exactly who God said that he was. So now, here, the enemy says, if you are the son of God, and he hits him with three temptations that fit his exact mold. I mean, Jesus has spent 40 days in the desert fasting My man has got to be hungry. And the enemy comes and he points to these rocks and he says, hey, turn these stones to bread, desires of the flesh. Jesus responds with scripture. Bible says that the enemy then takes him to this place and in a minute's time, he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you just bow down to me, I'll give these to you everything that you can see, desires of the eyes. Jesus responds with scripture, the indwelling word of God. And from there, the enemy takes him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he says, jump and call on your angels to save you, the pride of life. Like, this is how he works. This is how he always works, doing everything possible to incline us away from God and what he says through our appetites, through our attention, and through our ambitions. Not only can the world not offer you what you need, but also it cannot provide you what it promises. See, when you really boil it down, it's really just shadows with no substance. John Tyson said this week, the vast majority of people have gone through 2020 not trusting God, but in self-reliance. And when you look around culture and those who depend on themselves... Those who have been shaken to the core, they've been shaken because the soil of secularism doesn't have all the nutrients for the human heart to flourish in environments like this. That is profound. They've been shaken because the soil of secularism doesn't have all of the nutrients for the human heart to flourish in environments like this. We need more for times like this than our culture or the world has the capacity to give us. The world cannot provide you what you need and the world cannot provide you what it promises. And finally, the world cannot offer you what lasts. Verse 17 says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God Abides forever. Like it's transitory. The world, it is not permanent. People pass, systems crumble, platforms change and empty beneath you. We saw even this week a little of what it looks like when people put all of their faith and all of their hope in a world system, in a person. It will fail you. And yet at the same time, it's been happening over and over and over from the beginning of time. And sadly, it will continue to happen over and over and over until the true King Jesus returns and establishes his rule and his reign. I had... Uh, a lot of conversations this week with a a bunch of different people. One of the revelations that I had, it's not profound by any means. It's probably a revelation that a lot of you had. You flip on the TV or you hop on social media or Twitter on Wednesday and you're like, this isn't isn't real. This has just gotta be, this can't be real and then there's more, and then there's more, and there's more. And we're glued to a TV because we're watching something unfold that's just embarrassing and sad, and yet at the same time, we're thinking deep, deep down in our, in our spirits like, this, this doesn't happen here. And yet people are all the same, and they've always been the same, and they'll always be the same. And you open up the word and you go back to the Old Testament to the moment when God's people were like, we want a king, like a real king, like a human king. And he's like, that's not a good idea. And they're like, we want a king like them and them and them. And God's like, fine, I'll give you that. But you don't even know what you're asking for. And we read stories of of a good king and he passes on and, and then there's six or seven awful kings and then they pass on and there's a good king and then there's six or seven bad ones. And there's uprising and there's uproar and there's sadness and there's sorrow because people are human. And it's been happening since the beginning of time. What we are experiencing is nothing new. It just might be new for us. And yet at the same time, it's not new for all of us. And so by his promise, we are waiting and we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And by contrast, the one who does God's will in this context, loving the things that God loves and not loving what he hates, will abide and dwell with him forever. And that is the promise at the end of the day for our identity in Christ. church it's all about love and it all comes back to identity and that is my prayer continuously for you in this place for our church for woodside detroit it has been the the deepest cry of my heart and it will continue to be the deepest cry of my heart fresh real authentic love revelations end of the day, at the end of your life, at the end of your time even in this community you're not going to remember everything I said or Tim said or Kevin or Rick or Ryan or anybody else, Jamie you're not going to remember what we said you might remember how you felt in front of us the one thing more important than anything that I pray over you is that when your time is done in this place or on this earth, you can walk out those doors and you can say, man, I thought I knew God's love, but I only knew about it. But then I, but then I, then I knew it. A lot of information up here lot of emotion down here. I want you to know God's love deeper than just information. I want you to know it. He wants you to know it. There are a lot of definitions in the Bible for the word know, to understand. But the way that he wants you to know his love is in this deep, deep, way. It's like the the marriage covenant. He wants you to know it, to be intertwined with it, to understand it. Like revelations that drop a head knowledge of God's love down to the heart where you know it and it begins to impact and influence every part of your life. May they know us. May they know you by our love. And may that love flow from a place of deep intimacy and relationship with Jesus. That is our heart, God. That is our cry, God. As we turn our attention collectively, God, to this forgotten virtue of love, What a perfect title for a series, The Forgotten Virtue, God. I look around the city, I look around our country, God, and I see a lot of people who don't love other people. A lot of people love, absolutely. They love themselves and they love what they're about. And if you're not about that, I hate you. And that's just not how it's supposed to be, God. And that cannot be what it's like in this place. That cannot happen. It will not work. We will not be here long. God, make us a place that people come to know and recognize and associate with just love. Thank you, Jesus, for our new identities in you and in your love. There's a verse, right? It talks about, in the Bible, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. And I never truly understood what that verse meant until I had that revelation of love where it dropped from my head to my heart in a worship set one night. And I looked up. And I saw Jesus on the cross, and he said, I love you. I did this because I love you. And something in that moment, it clicked in my life. It clicked in my head. It clicked in my heart. And I just knew that I was loved by God. And in that moment, nothing else mattered. In that moment, no rejection mattered. In that moment, no fear mattered. In that moment, nothing else mattered mattered because I was loved by God. I was loved by God. You are loved by God. He says, even if the worst thing happens to you, I love you and you know it and you will be with me forever. Jesus operated as fully man with a kingdom mindset. I think about Jesus in this book. I think about how easy it would have been for him, so hungry as a man, so hungry, how easy it would have been for him to just take a stone and take a bite and all of a sudden it's just the perfect piece of bread you've ever had. Yet he didn't because his purpose was greater than turning stones into bread. And he knew it and he understood it because his mindset was totally of the kingdom. I think about Jesus in that moment in John 17, glorifying me that you may be glorified. How can you pray that prayer knowing you are about to go die the most gruesome death? Because his mindset wasn't here it was secure in his identity of the love of the Father, and it was kingdom. And he knew, regardless of what happens to me, he said it on the cross today we'll be in paradise. Perfect love, God's love, our identity in his love casts out all fear. Why can it do that? Because our mindset shifts when we are in that perfect love, and nothing else matters. Rejection, if I get rejected every single day of my life, that does not have anything to do with my identity as a son or a daughter loved by Jesus. God, that is what we want here. That is the level that we are pursuing here. That is the level that we will not be content with. God, don't let us become content until we're at that level. And when we're there, God, don't let us become content with just experiencing it one or two or maybe three times over the course of our life. We want to we stay there, God. We want that to be the status quo of this community, Jesus, to be living like you were living, so secure in our identity that our mindset is consistently outside of politics and outside of money, but on the kingdom. And what it looks like for us to then pull down from the kingdom and go and influence these places in the world as opposed to letting these places in the world influence our mindset of the kingdom. Jesus, forgive us for all of the times that we've got it backwards. And would you now bring us in to communion with you, Thank you for loving us, God. Help us to love better. Help us to be better. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together.